Well, this morning we are continuing a, uh, a sermon series that we've been in, uh, in the Gospel of John. It's been a wonderful uh, time of learning uh, from John the Evangelist, who Jesus is, what he offers to humanity through a relationship with him. Remember, John tells us that uh, all of these stories that he's writing of Jesus, all the teachings that he's writing of Jesus, are written with one very clear purpose, that we might believe and have life in Jesus' name. That hearing all of the, the stories and the teachings that show us who Jesus is, all that he offers, we might look to him, trust in him, and in him find true, deep, and lasting life. And so, uh, this morning, our scripture reading is in John chapter 12. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from John 12, 12 through 33. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to, him, to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those he went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is, this, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. So in the crowd uh, that day... There's this huge crowd, this, this crowd of people that comes to see Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. People who had seen his power. Remember, he's coming uh, directly into Jerusalem from Bethany, which is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And we're told that the crowd that day who greets Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem is filled with, with really two types of people. Those who had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And those who had heard about it, uh, obviously news of someone getting raised from the dead travels quickly, and it attracts a crowd. And so there's this big crowd of onlookers, of people who are, who are wanting to see Jesus, to see who he is. And among that crowd, uh, presumably most of whom were Israelites, there was a small group of foreigners, 
a small group of, of Greek-speaking people who send message to Jesus that say, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus too. We who've been on the outside, we want to see who he is and get to know him. You know, uh, there's, I'm convinced that there's no greater need for anyone uh, of us than to see Jesus as he really is. You know, I think that's the case whether or not you're a Christian uh, who's been following after Jesus for a long time. No matter what you're up against in life, whether it's uh, addiction and, and sin from within, doubts from within, or struggles from without, temptations, uh, suffering, that what we need most in the midst of that is to lift up our eyes and see Jesus, to see all that he offers us. We have a tendency when we're when we're struggling, when we're suffering, to turn our eyes principally towards ourselves or towards our circumstances. But we too need to see Jesus, to see who he is, to see his grace and his goodness and his beauty, to see all that we have in him. We need to see Jesus. And also, if you're with us and you're not yet a Christian, you've got doubts, you've got questions about who Jesus is, what Christianity offers, I'd encourage you to make this your prayer. Just we want to see Jesus. You know, maybe you're not yet at a place where you can say, I'm, I'm ready to believe in Jesus, or I know that I believe in him. But are you yet at a place where you can say, I want to see him. I want to know who he is, uh, and who he claimed to be, and what he really does offer. That's a prayer, that's a hope uh, that God loves to, loves to answer. When we bring our sincere inquiries, our sincere questions to say, Jesus, who are you? Who did you say that you were? What did you do? What do you offer? We need uh, to see Jesus just as much as these people uh, in this story. You know, we live uh, 2,000 years uh, removed from the earthly life of Jesus. And in the, in the meantime, all sorts of other traditions and superstitions, uh, mixed beliefs about who Jesus is and what he means have crept in. And we need to see Jesus clearly and truly for who he is. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to seek to do that this morning, looking to this passage to see who Jesus is. And the first thing we see is that when you see Jesus clearly, to see Jesus clearly means to see Jesus as king. To see Jesus as king. You know, it's unmistakable uh, what's going on in this story. Is Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with the crowd shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's clear that what he's enacting, what's going on here, is a claim to be Israel's king, a claim to be Israel's Messiah. You know, the, the, the gathered crowd quotes from Psalm 118, which is a royal psalm. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The author of the gospel, John, brings in a quote from Zechariah chapter 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Sitting on, a, uh, sitting on a donkey's colt. That passage in Zechariah goes on to read, Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut the chariot off from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is a promise that, that Israel's king would rule and would usher in an age of peace over the whole world, that Israel's king would one day, the fruit of his reign, the peace of his kingship, would bring peace all over the world. 
And so when Jesus rides in uh, to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, it is a, it's a provocative statement that I am the king of Israel. Now, of course, the problem with that is that Israel already had a king that ruled over her. And it wasn't an Israelite king. It was the, the king of Rome, the Caesar of Rome. Israel was allowed to have governors. They were allowed, allowed to have bureaucrats that, got it, that kind of mediated Caesar's rule. But they weren't allowed to have a king. They weren't allowed to, to, to have their own king in their own place and their own country. And so for Jesus to ride in and for the crowd to chant, chant that he is that king, for them to say Hosanna, in, in, the, uh, in the Psalms, Hosanna uh, means come save now. Save us now. And salvation in that sense wasn't what we typically think. When you hear salvation uh, in today's world, you typically think salvation so that we can go to heaven when we die. But salvation in, in the Psalms means salvation not just out there someday when we die. It means salvation in this life, salvation from our enemies, salvation from illness, salvation from sin, salvation from all the things that afflict us. When the psalmist called out for God's salvation, they were, they were meaning, God, come help us now. And so when the crowd calls out, this would have been a dangerous and provocative act. Think about if uh, one of the a contemporary parallel I draw is imagine if somebody uh, claimed to be the president of the United States and they got together with a bunch of followers and they led a parade down Pennsylvania Avenue with people cheering them every step of the way, and then they went up onto the Capitol steps and put their hand on a Bible. That would be viewed as treason, right? It'd be viewed as an act of sedition. And in the same way, Jesus' claim here is incredibly controversial, that Caesar isn't the world's true king. He's not Israel's true king. I am the king that you've been waiting for. I'm the king who was to come. But the king that Jesus is and the salvation that he brings is not what the Israelites expected. And it's not what many of us expect. In the air that day when Jesus came into Jerusalem, nationalistic fervor was at a high pitch. Right? The palm branches that they, raise, that they wave as he comes in, those were a national sign of Israel. Think of it like uh, you know, waving the flag. Symbols of their, their nation's pride. Oftentimes, coins that were printed, it was always Roman coinage during this day that were printed, but often it would have Caesar's picture on the front and a palm branch on the back as a sign of Israel's life, their traditions. And so they're waving the palm branches, a sign of Israel's uh, national identity. They actually add uh, the, their, their quote of Psalm 18 when they say, even the king of Israel, that's an addition. That's not original to Psalm 118. So what they're starting to do, you can tell they're starting to get prideful. They're starting to believe that through their nation that, that Jesus is going to come and he's going to overthrow the Romans and he's going to lead them on their ascendance. They're maybe again going to be the kind of nation they were when David and Solomon were kings. You can see why, right? I mean, if Jesus has just raised a man from the dead and now he's riding into the city as a king about to, in their mind, stand up to the most powerful army in the world. Well, having a king that could raise the dead would be a fruitful thing to have. Uh, in a battle with the Romans. And so you can see why they would think, yes, this is, this is it. This is our moment. And yet Jesus comes humbly. He comes not to bring war or revolution, but to bring peace. He comes riding not on a war horse, but on the back of a donkey. 
He comes uh, not to be enthroned, but to find his way to the cross. He comes as a different kind of king than they had expected. And, you know, I think it's true in our day that we do tend to look, many of us, to the nations of this world to bring salvation, for the governments of this world to usher in peace and security, happiness and, 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 uh, and joy, in a way that they never really can. Right, we tend to look, it's easy for us, living in America, living in a country that, is, that, that gives us so many freedoms and blessings, to believe that one day the world is going to be blessed and saved through America, right, through our flag, under our, under our tutelage. But Jesus, when he comes as king, it absolutely relativizes all other human kings, it says that, you know what, other human governments, there may, be good, there may be better ones and worse ones, right? The way that human governments lead their people really does matter because human welfare matters, right? But the nations of this world will never bring the kind of peace and security that Jesus offers, that he's talking about here. He comes bringing peace. He comes bringing an offer uh, to remake the world as broken as it is by sin and pride to remake it uh, into the way that it was meant to be made. He comes to offer peace. And we should acknowledge that, you know, I think a lot of us at this point, okay, we say, yes, okay, Jesus is a king, but he's a different kind of king, right? He's a, he's a peaceful king, he's a gentle king. And I think we can, we can fall into believing that because Jesus is a different kind of king, that he's not really a king, right? Because he's, because he's peaceful, because he's humble, because he's meek, we can say, yeah, he's a king, but he's not... He's not like a, a king king. But the, the message of this passage is that Jesus claims a kingship that is higher and greater than any human king. Right? Not only here when he comes in, but on the other side of his, of his crucifixion, after his resurrection and ascension, what does he say to his, his apostles? He says, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? All power, all authority, that I'm the one king over all of the kings. I'm the one king that all the kings of this earth are eventually going to be judged based on whether they bow the knee to me, right? That at the, end of, at the end of history, whether you are the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful king of this world, or you live on the streets, ultimately your judgment is going to be by the king, whether or not you gave your life to him, whether you submitted your life under his rule. And so therefore, Christians throughout our history have had cause to be, I think, have to have kind of a holy cynicism. A holy cynicism about the claims of earthly rulers. We should look, look for and demand a kind of humility uh, from the rulers of this world. A kind that says, yes, you govern, yes, you're, you're, you're owed our obedience to the law, but ultimately, we serve a king that's above and beyond the kings of this world. This has the power to free us. If you're like me, this has the power to free us from riding the emotional roller coaster that is uh, the day's news. Right? We, have, there, there's, there, we can have a peace that goes deeper than what happened today in Washington or what happened today in North Korea. Right? We can look out at the world's economies. We can look out at the world's government and say, you know what? History isn't ultimately the story of the prosperity of nations, of the rise and fall of governments. 
History is ultimately the story of King Jesus bringing his kingdom to bear on this world through the church. And there's times where it looks like the church is suffering. There's times where it looks like the church is booming. But one thing God has given us, one thing Jesus has given us is the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Right? No nation on earth bears that promise. Right? No nation has promised eternal security. No nation has promised that one day uh, it won't go the way of the, Ro- of the Romans. But what we do know is that Jesus will build his church, that through, the reign of the, the, through his reign, through his people, through the expansion of his kingdom, that peace will be known on earth through his coming. And so he's a different kind of king. He's a humble king. He's a gentle king. But he is a king nonetheless uh, who demands the allegiance uh, of all the people and even the rulers of the earth. And so when we see Jesus clearly, we see his kingship, uh, we see what a king really is. And secondly, we see his glory. In this passage, there's an incredible paradox at what glory really is and what glory really means. Right? We assume that if a king comes in to the acclamation of people, if he says he's about to be lifted up and to draw all people to himself, we assume that he's coming to take a throne. We assume that he's coming to receive a kind of glory from the people. And yet what Jesus says in verse 23 and following, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His disciples are probably thinking, yeah, this sounds good. This sounds right. We're here, we're here for glory. We're here to see you enthroned. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Later on, he goes on to say, in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If there was a soundtrack uh, to the story, at this point you'd hear hear the needle scratch is Jesus comes in, and they think they're heading into a coronation. And he says, no, no. Unless a grain falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But when it dies, it springs up into new life. And when I'm lifted up, not lifted up on a, on a crown, not lifted up on a throne, but lifted up on a cross, pinned to a cross and hoisted above the earth, not receiving a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. Not receiving a welcome, but, but lashings and coated in mockery in a coat. In that day, in the moment of that darkest hour of shame and suffering in Jesus, that that is what it's going to look like when I'm glorified. So it's a strange thing that he's saying here, isn't it? That, that he's going to show his glory through his death, through his suffering. Right? The glory of God in the scriptures is often associated with God's temple, uh, with his presence, with his might, with his power. And yet what Jesus is saying here is, no, no, if you want to see the glory of God, if you want to see the glory of God, look at the cross. If you want to see my glory, look at my love. Look at me spilling out my life, my body ripped to shreds, nailed to the cross, given so that you could have life. You know, there, there has not existed in human history 
a darker uh, or more difficult way to die than crucifixion. The Roman uh, philosopher Cicero referred to it as the unsurpassable punishment. That in the, in the minds of humanity, no one has ever conceived of a more cruel way to end a life than crucifixion. He said this not only because of the intense physical pain that accompanied crucifixion, but because of the shame that went with it. It was viewed as a, as a way of death that was beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen. It was the way of death that was, a lot, that was given uh, for slaves and for those who'd been conquered uh, by the Romans. You'd be laid bare, completely naked and vulnerable, left to die. And so Jesus, the glory of Jesus, is that he, of all the ways that he could have died, of all the ways that he, that he could have been even put to death, he was put to death in this way, taking the very darkest and worst of human nature, taking the very darkest forms that human, humans have, have conceived of for showing our, our pretensions of power. He took that on himself. And he says here, if you want to see my glory, look at the cross. That's the paradox of the gospel. That God's glory shines most brightly in the darkest hour of his shame. Because the shame that's heaped on Jesus at the cross doesn't belong to him. It's not his guilt, his sin, his punishment. It's our shame. It's our sin. It's our guilt. It's love uh, that led him there. He says, when I'm, when I'm lifted up on the cross, I'll draw all people to myself. That there's something about the beauty of his self-giving love and his sacrifice, the depth of his grace and his mercy, that has a magnetic pull, a magnetic pull that draws the human heart to say, yes, that's, that's what I need. The love of a God who would give his life for me, the love of a Savior who would die for me. He would draw people to himself. The magnetism would be so great that the Roman centurion, one of the ones responsible for putting him to death, would look at him on the cross, would look at the way that he died faithfully and with forgiveness on his lips and say, surely this man is the son of God. So we see when we look to Jesus, when we see him clearly, we see the paradox of his glory. We see the way that he defeats uh, sin and evil and death. He says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He says, look, I haven't come to overthrow Caesar. I haven't come to cast out the Romans. That there's a ruler of this world behind the rulers of this world. That Satan works to keep this world in the prison of sin and shame and sickness and death. That he works through the authorities of this world to do so. And he says, I'm not going for Caesar. I'm here to disarm and to dethrone the powers of evil that afflict humanity around the globe and throughout history. By taking the very worst and darkest of it onto myself, I've come to unseat him and to set you free. And so we see the strange glory of Jesus. And then finally, when we look to Jesus, when we see him as, as he really is, uh, we ultimately see the meaning and purpose of our own lives. You know, it's, uh, if we have a savior, if we have a king, a messiah, whose glory looks like death and resurrection, whose glory looks like self-giving death on the cross, then it means that our lives can't be determined by the quest for our own glory. 
by the quest for our own success, our own riches, our own privilege, our own prestige, right? If, if Jesus is king and his path of kingship looks like death, service, giving his life away in order to be raised again into new life, right? If the grain must fall into the ground in order to, be, in order to spring up into new life, in that we have a pattern for our lives. We should expect that our lives will look like death and resurrection. That our lives will look like not the upward ascent of the ladder to our own dreams, our own wildest ambitions, but down the ladder, down down the way towards service, towards love, even towards death itself. Look what he says, after saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, it dies and remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Listen to what he says. Whoever loves his life, he's no longer just talking about himself, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world, or whoever holds it loosely, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. What he's saying is that life in Christ is to be joined to him. Right, if anyone's in me, I'm where he is and he's where I am. Right, when we place our faith in Christ, we're joined to him so that what's true of him becomes true of us, right? So that the, the death he dies on the cross pays the penalty for our sin and the life that he's raised to becomes our life. But we're also joined to him so that our life starts to resemble more and more his life. Joined to him so that our life is a way of giving our lives away in love so that we can receive new life from him. You know, I've always uh, been inspired by the story of Henry Nouwen. Uh, Nouwen was a, was a great uh, Catholic writer. Uh, he, in his book, In the Name of Jesus, he talks about what his life in Christian ministry has been like. Nouwen was a brilliant man. Uh, Nouwen had been a professor both at Yale and at Harvard, right? They, they don't just give those away. He was a, he was a smart man. He'd been the priest at a large and respectable parish. He was a known and beloved writer. He was the kind of guy that when he spoke, people lined up and signed up to listen. And then God called him from the midst of that, for this man who was eloquent and who lived his life on the, on the sharpness of his mind. God called him to go and to be a chaplain among uh, the mentally handicapped, to go to a community called La Arche, uh, the Ark in French. Uh, to live his life with a group of about 20 mentally handicapped men and women, to love them, to serve as their pastor. And he talks about this. He says, you know what? I, my entire life, everyone has cared about my degrees and my diplomas. People have cared about my words. They've cared about my teaching. And he said, now every day I go and I show up and I serve people who can't understand my words. They don't, the diplomas on my wall, they can't read them. They don't make a lick of difference to them. All they care about in the moment is do I love them when I'm feeding them, when I'm, when I'm sometimes changing their diapers, when I'm taking their confessions, when I'm, when I'm brushing their hair, when I'm trying to love them. The only thing that matters in those moments is, is do you love me? He had to die to his dreams, die to his ambitions, his identity, his security in order to receive this deeper calling, this deeper vocation to find his life among the least of these, among those who suffer and struggle and can't understand.
You know, just uh, earlier this week, I was uh, speaking to a group of church planters, uh, people who uh, either had or were planning to start their own churches like, we, like we've done here. And, uh, and, I, and I actually, I opened up this verse to talk about it, not just because I'm always good, you know, it's always good to get a two for one if you're writing a message to, you know, use the same passage, but because somebody, they, they had asked me, a lot of people had asked me, what is, how has church planning been different than you thought it would be? And I had to say, really, honestly, in every way imaginable, it's been different. But it, the, the story of our last four years, it really makes a lot of sense if you look at it in terms of unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it doesn't come and bloom into new life. I told these guys that what, what I had, something had to die. My ideas and my plans and my thoughts and my dreams of what I thought this church was going to look like had to die in a way. What we thought we were getting into had to die. We left, uh, when we, the, the, the core group of 40 people who came to plant this church left Christ Church East and Mandarin, two suburban, all-white uh, churches. We love, and, and there, you know, there's, we love those brothers and sisters. And I honestly, if you ask me what I thought it was going to be like when we came here, it's like, oh, we're just going to, we're going to do that, but here. Right, we're gonna be the same kind of people in the same kind of place, doing the same kind of thing. But God had a different vision, a different dream, a different plan for this church. A more beautiful and profound vision uh, for what this church could be. And we had to die to a certain idea about what it could have been in order to receive the deeper beauty of, of, of what he's called us to. Right, that the Christian life always, always involves a dying to what you thought it would be like to receive what, what it can be. I was talking to a couple uh, just earlier this week who said that they, they were told, they, they've come to realize that they're at a place in their relationship where they've, had, they, they've learned that they have to die to what they thought marriage was gonna be like. Right, that they can't, they can't get back to what they thought it was gonna be like. They can't get back to what, to what their dreams had been. But that God can bring something newer and deeper and more beautiful and more grace-filled and profound than it ever could have been. How many of you have parents have learned that the journey of raising children is very often dying to your ambitions and your dreams of, of what you thought your kids were going to be like, about what you thought you were going to prove to the world through the success of your children, and to embrace the grace of what God is doing in their life? Right? For how many of us is the Christian life? Then you know what? There's, here's what I thought it was going to be like. I thought it was gonna be me growing in, in greater and greater strength and success, victory over sin and addiction. And you've had to receive and go, no, you know what? It's, it's been different than that. It's been harder than that. In some ways, it's been more bitter, but in other ways, it's been sweeter. Because in dying to that, I've received this deeper grace of receiving in, in my own life the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we want to see you. We know that our deepest need in life is to see you, not our ideas of you, not our preconceived notions of you, but you as you really are. And Lord, it's a, we admit that we don't often want to die. Uh, we don't often want to deal with the suffering of the death of dreams and ambitions. But Lord, more than, more than anything else, uh, our ambitions, our dreams, our selfishness and our pride and our sin need to die so that we could live a deeper uh, resurrection life by your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would work your death and resurrection in our church, uh, that you would work your death and resurrection in our marriages and our families and our lives. 
Lord, we want to live, but we don't want to live under our own strength or out of our own gifts. We want to live uh, joined in heart and soul uh, to our Savior. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to die so that we might live life in you deeply. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.